you notice the pattern that Jesus had when he walked on this earth, he would see something, he would be moved by compassion for what he saw, and then he would act. And we try to act sometimes without it coming out of our heart. And the only things that will come out of our heart are the things we've truly seen in here. It's like looking on television and seeing some terrible disaster in some other part of the world and thinking, well, you know, that ought to move me, but I can't relate. You know, it's hard to relate to something like that until you know somebody personally that's been through something like that or you have it happen in your life and, 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 and then you have an experience with something and you've been, you're more easily moved by it. That's why God will often use things you've gone through. He may, not have, he may not have created the situation in your life, but you've gone through some difficult situation, and He will then later use what you've been through so that you can minister comfort and assurance to someone else. I went through that this week. Something, some difficult things I'd gone through a long time ago, I was able to share with some other people because, and, and have compassion on what they're going through because I've been through it. And it gives you a compassion for people when you can understand what they're feeling. In fact, the word compassion, if you break it down, literally means to feel along with somebody. And so, so God wants to do that in our lives. Jesus did that. And so God, by the Spirit of God, wants us today to be touched and experienced by something so that we'll be moved to, to do something differently or to come to another level. We've been talking about, really, vision, which is seeing things. And then when you see something you're moved in your heart to do something about it. And so that's really what vision is. And we've been talking about vision and, and the call that we, God has upon this church and upon us individually. And it certainly isn't unique to this church. It's for every church. So it really is very simple. Jesus called us and chose us to be fishers of men. And we saw in, in, in Matthew how Jesus went to four of them, Peter and, and, and his brother Andrew and then James and John, two other brothers. And he said... Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we've been looking at that, and then what we've been looking over the last few weeks is that in order to be an effective fisherman, and I'm not talking about catching with nets, but one-on-one, you've got to have the right bait. And we've been talking about the right bait. And we looked at Jesus as an example of that right bait. We saw, first of all, the attitude of the heart is crucial. He wasn't judging people. He wasn't condemning people. He was approachable. There was mercy and grace coming from him. That's why people that were hurting people that had failed in life were willing to come to him to receive that grace and mercy and help. And we've talked about the fact that so much of the church doesn't portray that. Instead, we portray judgment and harshness. And we may be scripturally right, but we're in our heart wrong. And we talked about that. We brought that down to this example of fishing. It's like trying to catch fish with an empty hook, with a barbed metal hook. There's nothing about that hook that would attract a fish to bite it. And we've seen that that our lives are intended by God to be the bait. And so the question is, what is the right bait? So first of all, it can't be judgment. It's got to be the same motivation that was in Jesus. And that should be easy to do because he lives in us. And he's being formed in us daily if we'll allow him to be. So we looked at that. We also looked at Jesus went around meeting people's needs. And he went and met, first of all, we looked at he met people's physical needs for healing and deliverance. And we looked statistically that more than anything else other than preaching the gospel, Jesus physically healed people. And he didn't do it just to prove who he was. He didn't need to prove who he was. He did it because out of sincere compassion for their hurt and their pain, he wanted to see them delivered. And we saw that's not just limited. See, I was raised to believe that was just limited to the time Jesus walked on the earth. That's just the Gospels. 
But, but we saw that, that he trained his disciples to do that. And that if we're a disciple of his, that's what we're called to do, is to allow him through us to minister to that same grace and deliverance to yes. people. I mean, imagine if, if you, know, you go into a restaurant. I know people have done this. Go into a restaurant and there's somebody... Cause we think ministry happens in church. No, this is our training ground. This is where we get strengthened and equipped to go out to the mission, ministry field, which is out there. You don't catch fish in the boat. You catch fish in the water where the fish are to bring them into the boat. And so that's what we've been looking at. And so we've seen, and then we saw last time that Jesus, not only did he meet their physical needs for healing and deliverance, but he also met physical needs for the natural things like food. And we've looked at that, how Jesus identifies with people's needs. And we ended up in Matthew chapter 25, where astonishing verses where Jesus talks about that in, in the great last day of judgment that uh, he's going to say that there's some of you, you know, you, you, when I was hungry, you, you fed me. When I was naked, you put clothes on my back. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people are going to say, when did we do that to you, Lord? And he said, because when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And then he's going to talk to the others and say, you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't visit me in prison. And they said, well, Lord, if we'd known you were there, we would have gone. But we didn't see you there, so we didn't bother to go. And he said, because you didn't do it unto the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. And I believe the real lesson of that parable is Jesus' identification with people that are in need. Not people that are in need that can help themselves, but people that are in need and destitute. God has a special place in his heart for the young, the elderly, and the infirm. The people that are helpless in themselves. He has a special place in his heart and identifies with all of our needs, but especially with theirs. And therefore, we're called to go actually physically meet people's needs. And, 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 and we talked about the fact that that's where so much of the church is. We wanna, we, our idea of coming to worship God is coming here. And we saw in that parable what also ministers to him is when we go do something for somebody else, especially those that are in need. So we've talked about those different types of bait. And we're going to talk one, about one last type this morning that's uh, this like that, but it's one that we can very easily overlook. So turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Because we've looked at what Jesus did for other people and what we're supposed to do for other people. But the one thing that's tempting to overlook is what he says we're to do for one another in the church. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. One of the principles of the Bible, especially the New Testament, and we'll see, you see that, we're not going to turn there, but you'd see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is talking to Timothy about the requirements, the qualifications for being in ministry, full-time ministry. He said one of the things is your, your home needs to be in order. Because he says if you cannot... If you cannot minister effectively in your home, how do you think you can minister effectively out in the church? So one of the principles, and we're going to see some other scriptures, is that if we're out there taking care of the needs of the world, but we're not walking in, a, in that kind of relationship with each other, what kind of witness are we really? In fact, one of the reasons the world does not, and by the world I mean unbelievers, does not respect the church more is they've looked at us. They've listened to us. Not what we've said, but what we do. 
And when the world looks at the church, and I don't mean just Faith Christian Center, what do they see? Division? Strife? They see some churches, you're not, obviously not here, they see some churches where you have to be of one color to go there. And if you're not of that color, you're essentially not welcome. And that's on both sides. That's on, it's in every, in, in, in every nationality, every color. It's that, well, we, ha- we hang out with our kind. Our, our nationality, and I understand there are reasons to come together around language and things like that. But there's this division in the church. And what does that say? about? It does, they don't care about our words when we don't act in accordance with our words. When somebody comes to me and, and I begin to get to know them and they'll say certain things to me, I note in my mind what they say they're going to do. And I watch whether they do it. Because I learn from them whether I can fully trust them or not. And somebody's always saying, well, I'll be there then, I'll be there then, and, and they don't come, then I doesn't mean I don't love them, but I note in my mind I can't fully trust what they're going to say. Because I've not listened to their words, I've watched what they've done. So, in a way, the ultimate validity of our bait is that we live a life that's consistent with what we say. Because you are living what you believe, not what you say. And that's, I'm tra- remember, I've told you, I'm preaching to me, and you're listening in. It's one thing to say the word, it's one thing to say we love people, it's one thing to say that we love Christ, but the real measure is what do we do? And the Bible sets some very clear milestones to help us discover where we really are. Now understand this, there's no condemnation in this. God knows where you are. God knows where I am. He knows where Faith Christian Center is. Revelation, the first few chapters are are very eye-opening because it shows Jesus giving a report card to seven different churches. And he gave a different report to each church. And in in all but several of them, he said, this you're doing right, and this you're doing wrong. That means he's watching the church, and he's evaluating the church. Now, and what he says of them consistently is, I know your deeds. Not I know what you believe. Not I know how often you come to church, that's important, but I know your deeds, I've seen what you've done. Now, we're not saved by what we've done. But what we do, we learned last week, is evidence of what we believe, James chapter 2 and James chapter 1. The evidence of what I believe is not what I say, it's what I do. Oh, I can tell this is really popular this morning. (laughs) Just bear with me. Just bear with me. The point is this. He knows where we are. And he's trying to get us to see where we are so he can bring us where he wants us to be. And if we'll cooperate with him and not resist him, not become defensive, not become argumentative, because he does know. (laughs) He does know. See, we don't get into a debate with him and say, Lord, I don't agree with you. That's not where I am. He's right all the time. Let's just settle that now. He's always right. You ever ever even work with somebody or live with somebody, don't look around you, who's always right? Uh, people come to me and say, well, well Pastor, the, the Lord's told me to do such and such. As far as I'm concerned, that ends the discussion. Because if you tell me the Lord's told you to do it, then the only issue is whether you're going to obey or not. 
Now, if you ask me whether it sounds right, like the Lord might tell you that, then we can have a discussion on it. But if you come and say, oh, I know the Lord's told me this, then the only issue is whether you're going to do it or not. Whether so, so Because the Lord's always right. Is that right? And we don't need a vote in here to, to establish that. He is. So it's better for us to come and listen to what he has to say so that we can receive the correction, make the adjustment, and he can bring us up to where he wants us to bring us because he loves us. He's not trying to condemn us. He loves us. He's trying to help us grow up. Isn't that what we do with our children? Hopefully. We correct the things that are wrong in their actions because that reflects their attitude usually, so that they can grow and mature to be a healthy, strong adult because we know when they do that, they're going to live a much happier life than it, because if they don't learn the lesson with you, society's going to teach them. Some guy with a badge and a gun on his belt may have to teach them the lesson you didn't teach them because they're going to have to run into reality eventually, and that's true for us. Okay, all right. Did you get... Have you enough time to find John 13? Okay. We've read this before. Verse 34. A new commandment I give you. Notice it's not a suggestion. It's not a principle. It's a commandment. And with a commandment, there are only two choices. I obey it or I disobey it. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved also have loved you. By, look at verse 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples, not by what you say, not by how you dress, not by where you go. All will men will know that you are my disciples if you have love, this kind of love, one for another. We're talking about bait. So the last kind of bait we're going to talk about is the love we have within the church for one another. Because the only way they're going to know what he's like is to see him in us. Not just him in John, but him in how John relates to his wife of 45 years, Anita. How John relates to his children and his grandchildren. It's living this out that demonstrates what he's like. Because God didn't just sit in heaven and said, I love everybody. He demonstrated his love. Demonstration means you take something that's truth and by your action you make it visible to people. Like a, uh, I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to have uh, a vacuum cleaner salesman would come to your door. And they'd knock on the door and they would bring their special super duper vacuum cleaner in and they would take your nice clean rug and dump some dirt in it, and they would not just tell you how effective this vacuum cleaner was, they would demonstrate to you. what They would show you a sampling of what it would do so that you would know it's not just their word about it, but you could see that what they said about that vacuum cleaner was true because you saw their dirt on your carpet picked up by their vacuum cleaner. That's what demonstrate means. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, it's that the way you relate to one another is going to be evidence to the world of what I'm like. And so the way we treat one another matters not just within the church, but outside the church. 
How we love one another, the Bible teaches us, is a measure of how much we love Him. I'm going to say that again. The Bible teaches us, and I'm going to show you the scripture in a minute, that the way we love one another is evidence of how much we love Him. I'm going to say it again. The Bible, everybody know what the Bible is? The Bible says, we may not agree with it, but the Bible says that the measure of how much we love Him is the way we love one another. Because we have this attitude, we can separate the two. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. At home, I just worship Him and love Him. And just my heart wells up when I sing songs of praise to Him in the car. And I come to church and I just worship Him. And it's just a wonderful time. And I just love Him so much. And that's great. But if He said to me, I command you to love your brethren. And I said, but you don't know what they're like that's too hard for me, then I have basically said no to him. Because this idea of loving one another isn't a church principle. It's a commandment that the head of the church has given to his body. And so if I say I love him, but I'm disobeying him, he has said, then you don't really love me the way you think you love me. Just like the proof of our love for one another we're going to see isn't that warm, fuzzy feeling we get when we see each other. The proof is what do we do? Now, we don't do it in order to love, but it's the evidence of what we really believe and have in our hearts. That's not just true with each other. It's true for our love for Him. Well, let's give some scriptures to show that. First John chapter 4. Someone took First John out of my Bible here. One of you snuck in. You didn't want to hear this, so you took this out. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's not that because you love God, now you're going to require to love your brother. No. If you love God, then it must be that you love your brother. Because you can't selectively love. You can't selectively love. You're either loving God... And, other, and others, or you're not loving with this kind of love. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, because this is all part of the same discussion. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him, who, whom He begot, also, excuse me, every love, everyone who loves Him who begot, or birth, also love Him who is begotten of Him. Let me go over that again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, And everyone who loves him, that's Jesus, whom he begot. I'll be back up because I got it wrong. 
and everybody who loves him who begets, who gives birth, must also love him who's begotten of him. So if we love him who gives birth to us, we've got to also love the ones that he's given birth to if we love him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So as hard as it may be to love that person that you live with or you work with or that's a Christian, He said it's not burdensome. Okay. Let's go back to chapter 3. Verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made known. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not talking about the world, he's talking about in the body of Christ. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, to justify himself. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Loving the brethren doesn't pass you from death to life. It's the evidence that you have passed from death to life. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I haven't murdered anybody. Matthew chapter 5, I think it is, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about this. He says, under the law, it says you're guilty if you actually slay him. But I say you're guilty if you've slayed him in your heart. If in your heart you wish he was dead. If in your heart, see, hatred, we're not talking about getting mad at somebody Hatred is something that goes down in your heart and wants to see that person punished or destroyed. It's just you don't have the courage or the ability to do it. Which is interesting because in Matthew 5, the standard that Jesus gives is we're to lay our life down for our brethren. And what he's talking about is the opposite. Instead of laying your life down for your brethren, you want to lay your brethren's life down for you. (laughs) In other words, you want to get back at them. Well, they're getting away with it. They deserve to be punished. We've studied this before, because when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the attitude of the heart, and the understanding of it comes in the verse where he talks about, so that you may be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What he's challenging us to do in that teaching is to act like our Father because that's who who we've been born again to be like. And God doesn't go around punishing those people who who fail Him. Aren't we glad? Aren't you glad He doesn't get back at us? That He doesn't look at you and look at Himself and say, they don't measure up. Therefore, they deserve to die, because we all deserve to die. 
Are you following me here? So that when he talks about hate is like murder, he's talking about, in essence, you're saying, I want him dead to get to pay for what he did for me. And in God's eyes, that's like murder. See, what we desire in our heart what we, is far more important to God than we realize. I have time to get into it this morning. But God's concept of sin that we see in the Bible in the New Testament is very different than most of the church's idea of sin. The church's idea of sin is doing something outwardly that's wrong, but that's what it was under the law. The New Testament concept of sin is in here. Paul says, I govern myself as to how it may affect my brother. So if I'm sitting down at a meal and my brother sitting next to me whom I really don't know says, I don't know, was that meat sacrificed to, to an idol? So what happened is at the, at the, at the, in the temples where they worshipped idols, they would have animal sacrifices. Then once they killed the, cow, the calf or whatever it was, they'd sell it in the marketplace. So the issue to Christians is that steak we're eating tonight may have come from a cow that died because they were sacrificed at the temple of Diana yesterday. You following me? Yes, sir. So therefore, that, ca- that steak, it, 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 you know, it, may be, it may be cursed somehow. It may be sinful because it was used to worship demons. Yep. Paul says, if I give thanks, this is where grace comes. If I give thanks for it, then it's sanctified because by giving thanks, I recognize that whether it was bought from the temple like Diana, God provided it for me. So by giving thanks to God, I'm acknowledging He's the source of it and that sanctifies it. I know that. But if my brother doesn't have that understanding and it's troubling his conscience that by eating that, then I won't eat it. He says, why? See, the church is so concerned about our rights and God's more concerned about what are I doing, how is it affecting others. He says, because if I eat this and I encourage my brother to eat it because he sees me eat it, but it's going to violate his conscience, he sinned because he violated his conscience. Ooh. Someone for whom the Lord died. So Paul says, I won't touch it if I suspect it's going to encourage him to do something that's going to violate his conscience. That's why we have standards in ministry here. Not to try to govern people's lives, because we understand that if you're going to be involved in ministry, we'll require you to live life at a different, different level because you affect other people, whether you're here in church affecting them or out somewhere else affecting them. We need to learn to grow up and decide, am I, what I'm doing, what's this, what, is a wit, what kind of witness is this? Because they know I'm a Christian. We've got to move on. Okay. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to, this is going to, I want to f- focus this in a little more. Excuse me. I'm sorry. No, don't go yet. Chapter 3 of 1 John. Okay. Verse 16. By this we know love. Now we're going to get down to the practicality of how we live this out. By this we know love. In other words, he demonstrated because he laid his life down for us. We also ought to lay our lives down 
for the brethren. I just gave you an example of how Paul did that in a very, very uh, internal way, with an attitude. Then we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. We're talking about the church now. For whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Okay. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you an example of a church that understood this and lived it and the effects And then we're going to look at a church that didn't get this and the results. Acts chapter 2. And this is right after the day, this is the day of Pentecost. They've been waiting in the upper room in chapter 1 and chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. They pour out into the street. And see, we want to get filled with the Holy Spirit so we can, we can speak in tongues, and that's wonderful. We need to do that. We need to do more, much more than we do. But the effect of this is they spilled out in the streets. The effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is they spilled out into the streets. I'm going to say that. I'll say over here. The effect of that was when they were really filled with the Holy Spirit, they spilled out into the streets. They couldn't keep it in church. And when they spilled out into the streets, people gathered around to wonder, what is this? It wasn't something they worked up. And at the end of it, Peter begins to answer them with the most powerful sermon he ever preached. The same man that only a few weeks earlier wouldn't even admit to this young girl that he knew who Jesus was. Now he's filled with boldness. And the Spirit of God has filled him up and he's pouring out of him. At the end of his sermon, the result of this is that they all cry out to him, what must we do? He says it touched him and quickened him to the heart. What must we do? And he says you need to repent and be baptized. Oh, isn't that interesting? Okay, now, verse 42. So this is just following that. And they continued, this is the new believers, steadfastly, that means consistently, in the apostles' doctrine, that means the teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, we, take, we have the word fellowship, and we use it so lightly compared to what this word actually means. It's the Greek word koinonia. And that word means, because our concept of fellowship is we're going to go out and eat together after church. <laughs> and that may be part of it. But the word koinonia actually means a sharing together. It, it, the simple definition I've heard preached is it's, it's fellowship is, 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 the, is the, uh, the same fellow, fellows in the same ship. In other words, it's going through something together. Have you ever gone through an experience together? People in war, maybe, uh, maybe you've been through some kind of emergency situation, maybe stuck in an elevator or something like that. You begin to develop a common relationship because you're going through something together. And it creates a bond, an understanding, a commitment together to accomplish a purpose. 
And that's what the word fellowship in Greek really means. It means, it means a, a, a union, a coming together. And not just sharing of things. The sharing of things is the result of the coming together. And actually the word church is the Greek word ecclesia, which literally means called out ones. But there's another side of it. It means a group of people that have been called out of something. What we've been called out of is the world. But it also implies called together for a purpose. And so fellowship here, when they gathered together and they grew in, in, in steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, that means in their coming together, in their unity together, in their bond together, in their sharing together. And they had to do that because they weren't so popular back then. They, see, they, they don't, didn't even know what was going on. They just knew something was happening in them. They just knew what they had in common was they loved Jesus and that everybody else hated him. So they came together and they grew in their fellowship, in their sharing together. And look at verse 43. Then the fear of every, came upon every soul. That's the holy reverence of God. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as, look at this, as everyone had need. Now, boy, this sounds like communism. And in fact, Karl Marx picked up on this and basically took the position, if I understood it correctly, that Jesus was in essence a communist. But see, communism is when you do this by legislation. Communism was when, when the government says to you, look, you got too much and you have too little, so I'm going to take this away from you and I'm going to give it to you. It's called transfer of the wealth. Or taxing, but anyway, we'll, um, and, and, and we won't go there. But it's the government decides that we all ought to share equally. And when the government decides that it, it hasn't come out of our heart. So what it creates is resentment when it's coming from you and going to somebody else, because it's not something I did for them out of love. So it doesn't change the heart, which is why communism doesn't work. But this isn't going on because anybody legislated it. It's because they loved one another so much. If they had something and their brother had a need, they didn't want to hold on to what they had because they cared more about their brother's needs than what they had. So there was a sharing together. There was also a sense of urgency here because they knew he was coming back. They thought he was coming back soon, so they didn't care what they had so much. They were willing to share, get rid of it, and would share, the, share it among each other because we need each other. Let's go over to chapter 4. Now, the church that we just read They came together because there was a common bond of their fire and love for the Lord. Now by chapter 4 what's happened is persecutions begun to come against the church. Because they started standing out and Jesus began to perform miracles through them. And the religious people didn't like that because it showed them up. So they arrest Peter and John. 
throw him into prison, the supernaturally brought out, come back to the church and say, this is, we've been, we've been told that, that we can't preach in his name anymore. So the pressure from the outside, from the world, which is really the devil using the world, to pressure them to be quiet and to not do anything out of the ordinary, not demonstrate what Jesus is like, not be bait. That pressure is now on them. In chapter 4, And what they do, we're not going to read it, but starting around verse um, uh, 23, 24, they come together and pray of one accord and cry out to God. It's interesting, they don't pray to be delivered from the persecution. They pray that the persecution wouldn't silence them and they'd be bold in it. Now we're going to look in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Look at that interesting. They were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own. That doesn't mean that they didn't have their own possessions. Their view wasn't, this is mine. This is how they saw themselves. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed were his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord. And great peace was upon them. Now look at the result of this sharing together out of love. And we're talking about bait. We're not talking about now the way we love the world. We're talking about the love that we have for one another. Not just glad to see you in church. Oh, it's so good. We missed you. Where were you last week? It's being willing to act on that. Care enough to find out each other's needs and being willing to open up and give of what we have as our hearts are moved. See, they didn't, we weren't made to do any of this. This came out of their sincere love for one another because we've seen that when we truly love somebody, we're going to act. We can't sit still. We have to move. We have to do something. And what Satan wants to work in the church is fear. Well, I can't share what I have with others because I may not have enough. That comes straight from the pit of hell. That's designed to divide and isolate because then he has you on your own trying to provide your own resources. But in this room right now is enough to meet every need of every person. Because we learned last week that all we're supposed to do is take what we have, the five loaves and the two fishes, and take what we have and give it to him. And then he'll multiply it so it's enough to meet everybody's need with something left over. But what if the little boy said, oh, I'm not sure, I may need this tomorrow, I don't know how long I'll be out here, I can't share this. Well, I'll give you a fish and a couple of loaves. He shared what he had, and the result is, I believe he ended up with 12 baskets, but he certainly ended up being filled and being fed as well as everybody else. Okay. Well, look at this, verse 34. Nor was any among them who lacked. For all who were of possession of lands or houses sold them. Not saying that's what we've got to do. But they were willing to. Brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they were distributed to each one as each one had need. Oh, I didn't, have a ch- I didn't read it. When we back in the, in the verses in chapter 2, 
It says in verse 47, And the church had great favor, and there was multiplied every day to the church those that would be saved. So what happened is the church began to share with one another, take care of one another, truly love one another. It began to create an attitude in people outside that there was something special here, and it drew them. And that's bait, isn't it? They'll know you're my disciples. They'll know what I'm like by the love you have for one another. But how are they going to know that love if they don't see that love? All right, now let's quickly look at a church that didn't do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now the amazing thing, and you've heard me teach this before, was this in some ways was the most, on the outwardly, the most spiritual church in the New Testament. Because if you came to a service there, you saw things. You saw spiritual things. You saw prophesying. You saw, you saw words of wisdom. You saw miracles. You saw the nine gifts of the Spirit operating there fluently. You saw all the, So you'd come to a church service and you'd say, Wow, look at this. My goodness, the Spirit of God is sure moving here. Woo! We have found our home. But God's view was going on there was very different. You read the first chapter of this book and you'll find the scene. Paul says, you think you're so spiritual, but in God's view, you're carnal. In other words, you're, you're just like the world. Why? Because there's divisions among you. So the sign of the world is they fight and they're envious and they're jealous and they don't forgive and they're hoard and they're stingy and they're just... And, and he says, and you're just like them. Oh, the gifts of the Spirit may be flowing. That's why in chapter 13 he says, if all these gifts are flowing, but they're not motivated out by, out by this kind of love, God's not that impressed. In fact, he counts it as zero. So that's the setting here. Now we're going to look at some of the specific things they were doing. By the way, I want to give you a statistic here. I had a teacher, actually it was Tony Cook mentioned this one time, and I, so I went and checked this out. The word, the term one another in the New King James New Testament appears 87 times. Out of those 87 times, 57 of them talk about relating to one another. The others talk about, you know, they said to one another... Uh, but 57 times in the New Testament, it talks about relating to one another. 17 of those talk about loving one another. 17 times in the New Testament, we're told to love one another. Other things we're told to do for one another is comfort one another, have peace with one another, prefer one another. Oh, here's a real popular one. Submit to one another. Receive one another. In other words, be open and receive them. Bear with one another. Be tender with one another. Here's another popular one. Forgive one another. 
Oh, we like this one. Admonish one another. Here's a good one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the other is not sue one another. Oh, that's a big one too. All right. So let's look at this church and let's kind of get a a picture here and then we're going to move in and, and do some things. Very familiar verses. We're going to start though in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Is everybody clear? He's rebuking them. Paul was, could be very sarcastic. Since you come together, not for the better, but for worse. First of all, when you come together as a church. So he's talking about a church service. I hear there are divisions among you. In other words, this group will only sit with this group and this group will only sit with this group, and this group's not talking to this group, and this group's not talking to this group. This is the body of Christ. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, it's to a communion service, which is what we're going to celebrate this morning. He says, you come together and you may eat food and you may drink drink, but it's not the Lord's Supper you're coming together. Why? Because there's divisions. There's a difference between going through a ritual and sharing the Lord's table together. So he's saying, you go through a ritual, but it's not the Lord's Supper you're sharing. Because there's divisions among you. There's strife among you. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another's drunk. They're drunk in church. Now, not drunk in the spirit. <laughs> what was happening is they'd come in, they'd bring, instead of serving it the way we do, they'd bring the bread and they'd bring the, the, the wine, and they'd sit down and they'd, they saw it as a potluck supper. And I wonder at how many of our services God looks at and says, well, that's just really a social gathering. Because out of their heart, they weren't really there to reverence and worship me and to really love one another the way I want them to and need them to. But they were glad to see each other. Bless you, brother. It's so good to see how you've been. I don't care, but how you been? <laughs> Not out of meanness. It's just I don't want to get involved. I got enough stuff of my own. I don't want to hear what your trouble is because I got my own. It's not the bad people. And I wonder if in God's eyes that doesn't look more like a social gathering. I don't care if we sit in blue churches and sit chairs and have sing nice spiritual songs. It's what's the heart he's seeing in us? What's the unity of his body that he sees? What's the real meaningful caring for one another that he sees that comes out of the heart? Because that's what was going on in here. It was a social gathering. Oh, they were in church sharing the Lord's Supper. But how did he see it? 
Verse 22, don't you have houses to eat in or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame with nothing? What shall I say then? Shall I praise you? I do not praise you. For I receive, this is what we read every communion. For I receive from the Lord that which I deliver to you. The Lord, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he took the cup for the supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that doesn't mean whether the cup's clean or not, it's the attitude of the heart towards each other and towards respecting who he is, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, talking about the attitude of the heart, the disunity, eats and drinks judgment to himself, Why? Not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning that we are the body of the Lord. This is about unity. Not just unity of name, I belong to Faith Christian Center, but unity of name, I belong to the Lord, you belong to the Lord, I'm one part of His body, you're one part of His body, just as your body cares, one part cares what's happening to the other part, so His body is to care what happens to the other parts. You stub your little toe in the middle of the night, all the rest of your body starts functioning to take care of and protect and relieve the pain of that little toe. It doesn't say, that's just a little toe on the foot. What difference does that make? I don't care. I'm the brain. I'm the essential part of this. Oh, no. Because it's one body. It's one body. And look at this. We just saw what the unity did in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. It drew people in. It was bait. They saw the love. They saw the unity. They could feel it. You can feel an atmosphere. Here there's disunity, even though outwardly it looks so spiritual. And look what went on. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. Verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That means died. Why? Out of disunity. We talked about it Wednesday night. I'm not going to get into it, but you need to get the CD from Wednesday night if you weren't here. Because it talked about what what holes in your life. And one of the biggest ones is our relationship with one another. Disunity in a church is like opening the door for the devil to come in and pour all his junk in here. It's the opposite of what God's ordained us to be. The good news is when we judge ourselves, verse 13, we're not to be judged by Him. For when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. In other words, see this for what it is. If one of you is hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, if you're doing this to just fill your stomach, do that at home. Let us come and let us come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order. What we're going to do now is we're going to, in a moment, going to receive the Lord's table together. We're going to do it with an understanding now that I believe is different. It is a celebration of His body and of His body here at Faith Christian Center and of the unity that we have here.